Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Can't Stop, Won't Stop, where we can't stop and we won't stop fighting for justice. I'm your host, Lindsay Ann, and today you will hear an interview with the brilliant nobody guy, Tad DeBias, who tried and won a no-body homicide case in Washington, D.C., and he now travels the country helping detectives and prosecutors win more no-body homicide cases. Are you ready? Let's do this! Hey guys, D here. Before we start, I'd like to thank all of our Can't Stop, Won't Stop patrons. Your monthly donations helps families just like ours fight for justice. The amount of money that we had to spend on a PI FOIA request, travel expenses, signs, bracelets, posters, and so much more was detrimental on our family. Which is why Lindsay created her Patreon tiers ranging from $8 a month up to $100 a month. Without each of you, there is no way she could continue to help in the fight for justice. Thanks, babe. And so you guys, if you're wondering how you can help on a monthly basis, please check out my Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash can't stop, won't stop, where you can learn about those four different tiers that are available. We appreciate you. Yes, we do. So before you guys hear this interview that I had with Tad DeBias, I want to reiterate that this podcast is for everybody. You may not have a missing loved one right now, but unfortunately the reality is one day you might. Or maybe you will know someone who has a missing loved one. Please share this podcast with anyone that you know that has a missing loved one. Tad DeBias is brilliant, and he wants to help get convictions. He wants to help prosecutors and detectives. Let's use this beautiful resource that we have. Share this episode with anyone that you know with a missing loved one. There aren't many people out there that I know of so far that want to take on no-body homicide cases. We found someone, so let's use him. Let's get more killers off our streets. With that said, you guys, here's my interview with the nobody guy, Tad DeBias. Okay, so you guys, I am so excited and honored to have Tad DeBias here with us on the podcast. And so welcome, Tad. (laughs) Hi, Lindsay. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. Of course. We're so, so honored and so excited to have you. So I guess let's just start off with can you just kind of tell people your background, what you do now, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So my name's Tad Tobias, and I have dubbed myself the nobody guy because of my 
uh, weirdly fascination, uh, endless fascination with no body murder cases. And that fascination began when um, in probably about 2004, when I was a prosecutor at the US Attorney's Office in DC, I was given a missing person case and the person who gave it to me thought correctly that it was a no body murder case. Um, at that time, I'd been a homicide prosecutor for probably about 10, almost close to 10 years. And I'd never had a no body murder case, but I knew that that was sort of the ultimate murder case. I've always said murder's the ultimate crime and a no body murder case is the ultimate murder case. So weirdly, I was very excited to get a no body murder case. Um, and when I started doing it, I realized that there were, was only one other no body murder case in DC ever, which is unusual because DC, as many people know, had a very high murder rate back then. And so I was kind of surprised that there'd only been one no body murder case. So I started researching cases across the country to figure out how do you do this type of case? How do you prove it? How do you show a jury that not only is the victim dead, but that this person in the defendant's chair is the one who did it? And as I ended up over the next two years bringing my case to trial and trying it successfully, I became very fascinated with the idea of nobody murder cases. So I started collecting the cases and I started blogging about them, but I did it anonymously because I didn't want the Department of Justice to know I was doing it. And I didn't want to jump through kind of all the bureaucratic hoops to do it. So I just called myself the nobody guy and I didn't say my real name. And then when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2007, I decided I could come out of the closet, so to speak, and say who I really was. And it just kind of exploded in the now, I can't even calculate how many years since then, 14 years. 15 years since then. Um, I started consulting with police and prosecutors on the cases. I ultimately ended up writing a book in 2014 about how to investigate, prosecute, and win these cases. And then I started lecturing on them. So I lecture to um, police and prosecutors across the country about how to successfully investigate and how to successfully try these cases. So, so just after being assigned one nobody case, that's all it took? For you to get hooked? Uh, yes, which is weird, but <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm, I'm also a person who is, I like to count things. Uh, I've counted every mile I've ever run since seventh grade. So I like to keep track of things. And so I started thinking, well, I could keep track of these cases because nobody's done that. Um, it turns out, in fact, there is a fellow in Australia who keeps track of nobody murder cases worldwide. Um, and what he does, which makes a lot more sense than what I did, he worked for the Australian Census Bureau. So he not only likes to count live people, he likes to count dead people too. And uh, he has this massive list and actually has some more cases than I have. Um, and I hope one day he'll actually share it with me what, what those cases are. Have you, um, have you been in contact with him? Oh, all the time. We correspond regularly, uh, probably several times a day about cases. So he has this massive list of nobody cases all over the world. The United States has the most cases by far um, because we are the most murderous country in the world by far. Um, and so uh, we have a lot of these cases. But so I just became interested because there was no one tracking it and no one, no central data point to collect all this. And I thought, oh, wouldn't that be cool if like I could track it and 
put it on a website and be like the person. And um, my two daughters who are 25 and 22 now, they get tired of hearing me saying, well, I'm the leading person in the universe on this, <laughs> the expert in the world, because they're like, yeah, dad, you're the only weirdo who does it. So who cares? What's your competition? <laughs> right, exactly. Me and a guy in Australia, we're it. That's it. So, but so that's why I became very interested in it and have kind of dedicated a portion um, of my life to, to, to not only finding the cases and counting them, because I do think it's helpful for police and prosecutors to know what do I need to make a nobody murder case? And there's no better way to show that than to say, here are other cases, here's what they had, but also to point out the commonalities in nobody murder cases and why we're seeing this explosion in cases because of um, technology um, and because of all these um, electronic trails we all leave behind. If you look at my current table, there's probably about 564 cases on there. Half of those cases have gone to trial since the year 2000. So we're talking about in the last 21 and a half years is when half of the no-body murder cases have gone to trial. And that's because of advances in DNA and other forensics, but also all the trails, right, we all leave behind with our phones, with the um, CCTV that are everywhere now, with our credit cards, cell tower records. I post on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat, all of these things. That has made a tremendous difference because now the police can show much more quickly, hey, Tad or Lindsay aren't missing. They're actually dead because I haven't gotten a text from Lindsay in three days. That never happens. She texts me every day. We constantly text. She hasn't posted anything on Snapchat or Facebook or Instagram, whatever the popular ones are now. And they literally change on like a weekly basis. So I have to keep asking my daughters, what are you guys using now? What are the big ones? Um, and that's, that's made a huge difference in the cases so that it's, to me, it's endlessly fascinating from when I started in 2004 and got my own case, there really wasn't this social media. And in my case, didn't involve any of that. It involved some electronic trails because my victim was receiving welfare payments. Um, year again, what payments. year again was that? So my murder happened in 2004 and I went to trial in January, 2006. Oh yeah. So, Social media was not really a thing, but we were able to show she was receiving social security payments for a disabled son that she had. We were able to show she never tapped into those. And that was very damning because she was not someone of means. She was someone who was kind of living, not even paycheck to paycheck because she didn't actually have a job at the time of her disappearance and murder. So she was not someone who would have left any money on the table like that. And of course, that social security in her bank account was building month after month after month. And that was a good indication of, of that she was not missing. She was actually murdered. What was her name in case people want to look that up? So that case was involving a victim named Marion Fye, F-Y-E. Um, and the defendant in that case was Harold Austin, okay. like the city in Texas, but he also went by Divine, was kind of his nickname. And like I said, it went to trial in January of 2006, and he was convicted, or I wouldn't be doing this. If I lost the trial, I'd be like, well, that career of the nobody guy is over. I lost <laughs> yeah. the trial. Well, I, I, I want to say on behalf of, there are four cases that I am really 
diving into uh, missing persons and that have been turned into nobody homicides. Um, on behalf of all of them, this is Ashley Morris, Mullis's family, Dee Warner's family, Cassie Merrow's family, and Jessica Bedford's family. Thank you. Thank you. We need people like you. We need someone who wants these cases. So for you, that was going to be one of my questions. When you were said, assigned that first nobody case, I was going to ask you how you felt. Well, you told me, you said that you were excited about it. And from... Unfortunately, my experience, and this is four cases, you know, of, of, of the 564 that you said, it doesn't appear that the prosecutors are thrilled about taking these cases. And so from these families, on behalf of these families, thank you. Thank you for doing this. And thank you for um, educating, allowing the opportunity, I think is, is, is yep. the real key thing there is that you're allowing this opportunity. It's whether who takes it or who takes it, um, to, to educate prosecutors, detectives on how to win, how to prosecute. Um, I feel like I know the four families that I speak to that I, that I talk in depth with, they're to the point where what does it matter if this case is, why not prosecute and try? We, <laughs> there's a lot of evidence in all four of these cases on who did it, just don't have a body. What happened, like what, we know what, we, I can't say we know, we <laughs> think we know what happened to the body. Pretty sure in, one for sure, the body won't ever be found. The other ones, maybe. Um, but we have the police backing and not the prosecutor. Well, that's not uncommon at all, Lindsay. I would say I spend a lot of my time on the cases I consult on um, working with the police. They give me the entire case file. I go over it. I give them a lot of suggestions. I give them a candid assessment of whether I think this case is winnable or not, because you can't try it unless you think it's winnable. That's, that's a prosecutor's ethical obligation. You've got to, from my time at the Department of Justice, you had to think you had a better than 50% chance of winning, of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which of course is the highest legal standard. Um, and I understand when prosecutors may differ on that, because certainly even within my office, there were people who thought, yeah, you can make this case. No, you can't make that case. And that's, that's fair. Um, but I do find the common kind of inflection point is trying to get prosecutors to agree to take the case. And one of the things I've always argued is, through my research, I've shown there are nobody murder convictions in all 50 states and in DC and in Puerto Rico and all of our territories and everything, Guam, the Virgin Islands, whatever you wanna to point to, there is no state where conviction has not occurred. So there's no reason for a prosecutor to say, I'm not taking the case because it's a no-body case. You can say, I'm not going to take the case because the evidence not there. That's, that's fair, mm -hmm. but it's not defensible to say I'm not taking the case because of this. And in the probably now, I think I just counted the other day, 42 cases I've consulted on, a decent number of those were cases where the prosecutor either initially said, I'm not gonna do it, or consistently said, I'm not gonna do it. And the only thing that changed was, I worked with the police, and sometimes I work with the junior prosecutor in trying to convince a district attorney or a state's attorney to bring the case. 
And we successfully have done that a number of, of times. In one of my very first cases I consulted on out in Colorado, the DA at the time said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to prosecute that case. And it was with detectives who had been on the case from day one. They saw the suspect on day one and had damning evidence against him. And it was only when a new um, district attorney came in and he said, yeah, let's do that case. And ironically, that um, uh, uh, district attorney is now um, someone who works in Congress, which is my day job working um, in connection with Congress. Um, and now someone I know quite well. And I've always said to him, it was fantastic that you had the guts to take that case and ended up getting, getting a conviction. And that's often what it takes. I had another case um, also convincing the prosecutor who believed in the case very strongly how we could convince her boss to go forward with the case. We convinced the boss, we went forward and she got the conviction. So a lot of the time is in, in my eyes, unfortunately, having to convince prosecutors but I also think it's the ability um, that I can bring because I was a prosecutor. So I know what the ethical obligations are. I know what the quantum of evidence that you're looking for. And I can say, hey, here's a case that's like your case. This case went to trial and got a conviction. And I've always said being a prosecutor is not about getting convictions. If you're about getting convictions, you're in the wrong line of work. That is not what prosecutors are to do, they're to seek justice. And that may mean taking a case that's a tough case and you may lose, so what? I have losses on my record and I don't like hearing about prosecutors who say, oh, I never had any losses. Well, you never took any tough cases then. That's not what being a prosecutor is about. And very few prosecutors that I know have no losses that were really strong prosecutors. There, there's a few, there's one I have in mind. Do I, do think of was an outstanding prosecutor and never lost a homicide case. But most of them do have losses and, and you have to take it. Now you do have to weigh that when you don't have a body. One of the things I tell people is, look, I have made my bones for the last 15, 16 years talking to people about how to get a conviction without a body. But having a body is always better. Don't get me wrong. If you have any chance of getting a body, let's do that. Continue to do that. Continue to find out. Because murder, like any other case, once you try them once for it, you're done, right? Double jeopardy. If you lose, it's over. And then the next day, the guy could come out on the front steps of the courthouse and say, oh, by the way, here's the body right over here. Sorry. Yeah. That means he's never getting convicted. So you do, there is a balancing test. But I often find when you have cases that are really old, you're not going to find the body. When you're talking seven years, 10 years, you may find some clothes or something maybe, but for the most part, you're not going to find the body and you have to move on and say, okay, now I have to just judge the case on the merits. Can I make this case whether I have a body or not? Or do I need to say, I'll wait longer for a body because it's only been two years or three years? Yeah. So the, the case that I'm really diving into in particular is two years old. The Bedford case? Yes. Yep. 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 Jessica Bedford. And yes. she, so in Michigan, so I did hear when you were talking to Sarah Turney, you gave me the idea or, she, or Sarah actually did talking about it, getting a death certificate for a nobody homicide. Uh, Michigan, you have to be deceased for five years. So that's mm -hmm. not an option right now uh, for her case. Let me talk on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I do think 
if you have the ability to get a death certificate, it's it's better than not having a death certificate. Don't get me wrong. Okay. Like you pointed out, Michigan's five years. I've heard of other jurisdictions where seven years. Mm -hmm. Those are often, though, for insurance purposes, more so than on the criminal side. And I don't think the inability to get that certificate should make a difference to um, a forensic pathologist or a medical examiner because they're not going to be involved in the case at all, right? I mean, one of the one of the jokes I had with my nobody case, when I was in the DC US Attorney's Office, you know, we're unique because we're a federal prosecutor, but we prosecute local crimes plus the federal crimes. Yeah. DC is this weird place. We don't have a district attorney. The US attorney acts as both a district attorney and a traditional federal mm-hmm. prosecutor. So virtually all of my career was spent on the local side. So when we did murders, we had our medical examiner. And I tried 20 homicide cases in my time in the office in 19 of those cases, I had to call a medical examiner. Well, back then the medical examiner's office was not very good. So I was very excited as part of my nobody case when I realized this is great. I don't have to call a medical examiner because they suck. So I was happy about it. It was actually one of the benefits of a nobody murder case. So getting a certificate is a good thing, but it's like a little bit of a good thing. It's not, it's not a major bump at the end of the day. A, pol- a prosecutor is still going to have to prove that person is dead, whether you have the certificate or not. And that's what also what makes these cases unique is in a normal murder case, you've got a body, you've got a, an ME who's going to come in and tell you, hell yeah, that guy's dead. And this is how they were dead. They were shot. They were stabbed. They were poisoned. In a nobody murder case, you don't have any of that. Mm-hmm. So you not only do you have to prove the defendant is the one who did it, you got to prove that she's actually dead. And I say she because probably 80% of the time, the victims are, are females. Um, that may be high, I have to look at that. But, but anyway, the vast majority of victims are females. Yeah. Um, and so you have that additional hurdle of proving that. And that's what makes, one of the factors that makes these cases so challenging is having to prove to a jury of 12 beyond a reasonable doubt this person is definitely dead. That's step one, because if you don't prove that, you're done. If, they, if the defense is able to prove, eh, do we really know she's dead? She might not be dead, or she may have killed herself, or she may have run away to Mexico, then you're never gonna make your case. And that's one of the particular things that makes these cases so challenging. I know, I would love, and I'm going to uh, reach out. I have already. I reached out in Jessica Bedford's case. I reached out to the uh, one of the, well, both of the detectives on the case, two of the lead detectives, one of the detectives happens to be the same detective who was on Egypt's case, which is oh, awesome. Um, yes. uh, so I have a really good relationship with, with one of them. Um, and I, I, I was kind of bummed. I asked them if they have any questions for you and I, I didn't get any response on that. Um, but I am going to, offer them your, I'm going to offer them your services. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and I'm, I'm happy with that. What I tell folks and for any of your listeners, I don't contact the police directly. Never have, don't do it. I rely on the family or others to reach out because my view is the police have to want me to be involved because what I require is give me your entire file. Give me everything. Put it on a DVD, CD, flash drive, whatever. I need everything. Don't describe me what your evidence is. 
Don't send me a two page, you know, memo about it. I need everything in order to be the most efficient. And I've done this 42 times. So I can give you 42 references of people that I've done it for. Um, and the best part about it, I don't charge you anything. It's free. You, you may get what you pay for, but um, I, don't, I don't charge anything because I have ethical obligations at, at my day job Amazing. that don't allow me to charge. And generally, I wouldn't charge you know, the government anyway. Um, and, but it's up to them. I've had a couple turn me down. I have a couple who initially were interested. And then when I said, yeah, I need your whole file, um, they say, no, I had one, when I said, I need your whole file, they said, well, why don't you ask the questions and we'll tell you, you know, your answers. And I said, well, how can I ask the questions if I don't know what the case is about? That's idiotic. I need to know everything. And then I'll ask you a whole bunch of questions. So, um, you know, some departments want to do it, some don't, and I respect that. But uh, you could talk to anyone that would say it's more helpful than not. There's no downside to doing it. And when I do it, I don't talk about the case afterwards. So if, if somehow the Bedford, the people who are investigating the Jessica Bedford case, I wouldn't come on a podcast afterwards. This, this would be it. And, and as you know, I've only read just a very little bit that's in the public realm. Yeah. about the case you and I haven't even talked about in depth about it. So um, I could come in, you know, clean eyes. But again, I got plenty of cases. So, I, you know, I'm happy to do more. Um, but I also, like I said, it's, it's kind of more than a hobby, less than a job because I do have a daytime job. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Well, I appreciate coming again from someone who doesn't have a missing loved one. And who knows one day I might, that's the thing is this can happen to anyone and absolutely but appreciate what you do. I like you don't charge families anything for yep. what I do. Um, I am you, it sounds like we're both what we want <laughs> if, if it ever happens to one of our loved ones. And it's yeah, no, absolutely. And, and as I was, as you and I were talking before um, we started recording briefly, I mentioned to you that my wife had passed away in March of 2020 um, of a very, she was a very long-term um, brain tumor survivor. So it wasn't unexpected. It wasn't related to COVID, but it definitely, I felt like I'd always been sympathetic to families because I was a longtime homicide prosecutor. I dealt with families my entire career, but it just makes you that much more empathetic when you go through that level of loss of someone that I was married to for almost 30 years it just makes it, it makes you understand even better what that loss means for someone who is um, a victim of homicide, a family member of a victim of homicide, um, just how difficult that, that really is and made me, I think I thought I was empathetic. I think it made me even more so to know how hard it is to go through that loss and to um, rejuvenate or re-energize me for these cases because a big thing for me um, is to try and get justice and try and get, um, I hate to say closure because it's really not closure Answer. sometimes, but to try and get some justice for people and some understanding of what happened to my loved one. Because to me, one of the insidious things about these cases, particularly when a lot of the uh, defendants are domestic violence um, folks, uh, abusers, is this the ultimate act of control that not only do you not know what happened to your um, to your victim or your loved one? You don't know how it happened, where it happened, when it happened, and you have no way of having that little bit of closure by having the body 
being able to do a funeral or a burial or, you know, you could do a memorial service, but it's not the same without the body. And that to me is kind of the ultimate evil about these cases is these defendants take that away from people. And you have those cases where defendants will say, well, if you agree prosecutors not to give me the death penalty or not to give me life without parole, I'll show you where the body is. It's not unheard of in no body murder cases. And to me, while I completely understand why prosecutors take that deal, don't get me wrong, it's a deal with the devil, but often the family wants to know, that to me is the most despicable thing uh, and the ultimate act of controls. Now I'm going to use my crime in the body as a bargaining chip to help myself again. Really, really um, distasteful to say the least. There's, yeah, there's no conscience. Conscience. Like, okay, okay. None for these people because many of them are narcissistic. They're domestic abusers. It's all about power and control. Um, and that, that, that to me is really disturbing. I'm reading a really good book now, No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Snyder, who is a professor at American University, which is one mile from my house because I live in DC. And it's all about domestic violence. Um, and a lot of insight into domestic abusers and things like that. And I have found it to just be a fascinating um, book because many no-body murder cases, probably 52, 53% are domestic cases. They're, they're classic husband killing wife, boyfriend killing girlfriend, boyfriend killing ex-girlfriend, and parent killing child, which is a little bit different, but is still domestic. Um, she just has a lot of insight, both through vignettes and through studies of um, domestic violence and domestic abusers. And she talks to a lot of domestic abusers, which is not necessarily something a lot of people in this domestic violence space do. And she doesn't do it out of sympathy, but to try and understand what motivates these people, which I think is particularly valuable because, of course, the goal of all of us is, is to prevent it and to put me out of business that there are no body murders. Yep. Yeah. I, I say all the time, like I've tried so hard to try and put myself in the brains of someone who has, has committed these. And I, every time I'm like, I, I can't because every right. time I'm more and more surprised at what someone can do and like, yeah. I just can't even put myself and I'm shocked at any new case that I hear it like, wait, what, how, what do you mean you did, you cut up the body and put it in your freezer? What do you mean you yeah. put it in soup and ate it? Like what? Like, yeah, it's particularly what? gory with no body cases because That's it is difficult to get rid of a body. If you're talking about, you know, a hundred to 200 pound person to get rid of them is not very easy. And if you're trying to cut them up and all that, it's particularly gory. Um, and there are a lot of examples of that in the cases that I've looked at that are kind of just, and I have pretty strong stomach. You read some of the stuff and you're like, ugh, I can't even believe someone could, could do that. But I do believe, um, like Professor Snyder, it's, it is important to try and get into their mind and to figure out what happened in their life that led them to this spot. And I think it's something a lot of people look away from, shy away from. And I do think it's a real important um, contribution. So it's called No Visible Bruises. Okay, great. I will definitely look that up. <laughs> so yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So I also, so um, I read, okay, I have it right here, that no body cases have higher conviction rate, 80, 86% rate than 
other murders, and that's at a 70%. Correct. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yes. That was one of the things when I figured that out, um, because I, I based it on my own um, cases that I studied, the 564 cases I have are all cases that went to trial. So I don't track pleas, but pleas in nobody murder cases are significantly less than 564 because most defendants figure they don't got a body, right? I'll take a shot. Of course I'm going to trial. And then what they discover is, hey, the conviction rate is 87%. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The number one reason is no prosecutor worth his or her salt is going to take a weak nobody case to trial because the defense is so obvious. Where is she? We don't know where she is. We don't even know if she's dead. So the strongest cases go to trial. The second reason I think is something I mentioned earlier about the high number of domestic um, murder cases. When you have a dead wife, a dead you know woman who maybe has a boyfriend, the defendant tends to be pretty uh, pretty logical. There's another podcast that has shirts that say the husband did it. It's kind of like, well, yeah, that's usually true. Doesn't always mean it's true. And, and certainly, I don't know how much you've talked about the case with your sister-in-law, but that, that yeah, proved they, to be. Yeah. In, in Egypt's case, it was not. It was, it was pinned not. on the ex-boyfriend. It was either the boyfriend or the ex-boyfriend. And that's all that it was pinned on. And it was. And it turned out to not be not either one. So then that's, I have a case that I teach on that's um, a well-known case from out in California same thing, wasn't the boyfriend. And in that case, the boyfriend, the girlfriend had each been arrested for domestic violence against the other. So when she was found dead, it was like, well, or, or missing. It's like, of course it was this guy, but it wasn't. Similar um, to Egypt. She, yep. we, have, we have records where the police showed up to both of them being violent to each other. <laughs> yep, very similar. And, but, but it does, the, if you're playing the percentages, it's yeah. going to be, you know, most likely that. Um, and so sometimes when you have a no-body case where it's a husband and wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, or probably more relevantly, ex-boyfriend and ex-girlfriend, mm -hmm. the jury is very comfortable sort of saying, yeah, it seems like it's him. Now let me look at the evidence. Oh, yeah, we got all these circumstances that say it's him. So I think that's the second reason why those convictions, you know, are higher. But you, like many others, including myself, when I started calculating it, was very surprised to see that. And I said, that that's not what I would have figured. I would have figured it was like 30% or something like that. But it's it's not. It's it's high, which says if you as a prosecutor can get to that spot, uh, you have a good chance of succeeding. And I will say of the 20 murder trials that I tried during my 12 years in the U.S. Attorney's Office, my no-body murder case was by far the strongest. I had a confession. I had forensic evidence. I had a confession to, to other people. Uh, it was a slam dunk case in some ways, except we didn't have a body. And of course, I didn't think it was a slam dunk at the time. But looking back at it, I'm kind of like, well, I actually had like a lot of evidence. in that. Yes. Yeah. So you had a confession. I had a confession that was a hard fought, hard won confession by a very skilled homicide detective after five hours. And it was, it was probably a mostly bogus because it was, she pulled the gun on me and I grabbed it from her and it twisted around and it went off and it killed her, which oh. I think is a lie, right. but at least put him on the scene, put a gun in his hand, explained what had happened. Then he explained what he did to the body and all that, which was damning enough um, for it. But do I think that's the true story? Yeah, no, I don't think that's the true story. Okay, so how 
how would you, how do you get prosecutors or how did you as a prosecutor treat every case that you were on as if it was your own loved one? That's what I have a really challenging time, I feel like doing is putting, I put a lot of pressure on the detectives that I'm working with, prosecutors that I work with is, what if this was your child? And if, a, and if a detective came to you with as much evidence as I know has been brought to you, as in the Jessica Bedford case, would you still not be signing this arrest warrant? Would you still not be bringing this to trial? Because right now I gotta tell you, every part of me says there's no way they would not be bringing this to trial if it was their loved one. And how do, how do we, I'm saying as families, move this forward when, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, Lindsay, I think it's a really good question. Um, and first of all, I'll say, as you and I know, I don't know much about the Bedford case, so I don't know what evidence they have. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to give you a little bit of, I think, a counterintuitive answer, which is, I don't think as a prosecutor, you can look at it as if it's a loved one, because you have to be dispassionate about the evidence, and you have to look at it using your experience, using what you know about your jurors to say, can I win this case? And you have to, in some ways, be a little cold-hearted and say, can I win this case? With what I have, do I have a better than 50% chance of winning? Now, that said, I think you have a whole panoply of prosecutors, some who are too aggressive, some who are not aggressive enough. And I think as a prosecutor, you always have to be a little bit what I'd call kind of either left or right of center of being leaning towards being a little more aggressive than a little less aggressive because murder cases are hard. Nobody murder cases are really hard and you have to have a mindset of I got to take a risk here because a nobody murder case after a certain number of years, it ain't ever getting better, right? Mm -hmm. The only way a nobody murder case gets substantially better is to find the body. But if you're in a time frame where you're not going to find the body, your case is only going to get incrementally better. Maybe the defendant slips up and tells someone. Maybe you find some other forensic evidence. Maybe you find another witness, but it's not gonna get hugely better. So what you have to do as a prosecutor is say, is there something that realistically exists that will make this case better? Because of course we got double jeopardy, right? As a little devil on our shoulder saying, you don't win this case, it's over, you're done. And so you say to yourself, do I re am I realistically asking my detectives to bring me, you know, as I always say, one more thing. I need one more thing. I used to tell my detectives that all the time. I give my to-do list of all the tasks. Oh, I ever hear. Prosecutor says we need one more thing. <gasps> I know. And it's frustrating. But what you have to say as a prosecutor is, is that one more thing that I'm looking for realistic or not? Yeah. Or is this what I have and I got to decide whether to go for it or not? But I don't think as a prosecutor, you can't say, is this my loved one? Because if it was a loved one as a prosecutor, I'd say, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say I'm going to bring a case. I'm going to get the guy into the courtroom and fucking pull out a gun and shoot him. And then I don't have to worry about a trial. So you just wouldn't think that <laughs> way at so all. <laughs> exactly. You're like, ha ha, I didn't have a case at all, but I shot your ass. Now you're so, going to jail. <laughs> right. You won't, though, because you'd get off. I take my chances on that every time. So I do think you have to have a certain level of 
uh, of dispassionate, but that's not to say you can't be passionate about bringing the case and advocating you know, for your victim. I was listening um, to another podcast, I won't name it, but they were talking hey, about- that's just, I'm gonna stop there because I tell every family that I'm working with, if I don't care, when you get asked to go on someone else's podcast, that is an honor. You want people to hear. I agree. Absolutely. possible to hear your loved one's name. And then someone say, wait, who is that? What is that? I know something about that. And I am so confident in what I do that I don't, I mean, I am so happy. Well, that's good. So the only point I was making was one of the things they talked about in this podcast, which is by a prosecutor and a former um, uh, sheriff, is they talked about prosecutors and police have an obligation to keep the family um, apprised of what's going on. doesn't mean they have to tell them evidence. doesn't mean they have to tell them the, the, the jot and dot of everything that they did. But we do, as law enforcement people, have an obligation to talk to the family, keep them regularly apprised of the case. And it shouldn't be that the family is calling me. I should be reaching out to them or when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., we had the benefit of having great victim advocates. I had a phenomenal one who didn't technically work for me, but they would set their victim advocates to take different days of the week. So when homicides came in, so my homicides always came in on the day that Marcy Rinker was working. It was the yeah. craziest thing. Oh, she's on it again. So um, when you have someone like that, they're going to proactively reach out to um, the family of a victim. And that that's really an obligation um, so that they know your passion and they know that you're working on these cases. It's not in the back burner and all that. And that, that to me is even more important than them thinking you're treating it like your family member because you can't do that, but they are treating it like super, super important to them. Did you speak with your families as a prosecutor before you signed like an arrest warrant, before it actually took, you took that step to move it to trial, were you in touch with the family or did you wait until it was like, all right, we're doing this, we're the arrest, before the arrest? Did you? I, I would say I did a mixed bag. Um, sometimes I would tell people before the arrest. More often, I probably told them immediately after the arrest. But on the run-up to it, the arrest would not have been a shock to them. I wouldn't necessarily have said, hey, uh, this is who we think did it, blah, blah, blah. But I would say we're making progress. We're, we're making good progress. Things are looking good. I should have some good news for you in a week. And yeah. then I'd say, hey, here's the person we arrested. Here's who it is. Oftentimes in murders in D.C., I handled a decent number of domestic violence murders in D.C., but I also handled a lot of, you know, regular run-of-the-mill D.C. murders that were often, you know, gangs and drug gangs or crews, as we call them in in D.C. So there was often no surprise to the family who had committed the murder. It was a question of making out the information, making the evidence. So they often knew. They were often telling me, this is who did it. Um, So in that sense, it wasn't a surprise. But you do have to kind of walk a fine line because you don't want to tell them something um, and before you've arrested the person, particularly in DC, and they're like, oh my God, they're arresting so-and-so. And then that guy hears about boom, gone. So it was, it was kind of a mixed, a mixed bag. But to me, the important part was they knew either I was communicating with them or the victim advocate. And they also knew they could call at any time. They could call me, 
They could call the victim advocate. And I'd never say, oh, I'm too busy. I got too much going on. It's, it's a real skill, I think, to live in the moment when you're dealing with a victim of crime and to kind of forget everything else and say, I got to give this person my time. It may be five minutes, 10 minutes, it may be half an hour, it may be an office visit. But during that time, I'm focused on them. And it was a skill I had to learn because I'm not a patient person. I tend to be juggling a lot of stuff. But you realize I got to focus on them because to them, this is the most important thing. This is one of six things I'm working on today. But to them, it's the most important thing. And as a prosecutor, you have to realize, and a police detective or investigator, you got you to gotta time out and really concentrate on them um, while you're having that conversation. And again, it doesn't mean giving them evidence. You're not going to say, oh, my God, we just got a fingerprint off the shell cases. This is freaking great. Because you do have to keep stuff back. But you can say, hey, we've got some real good forensic evidence. We're feeling good. Here's where we're headed next. Those types of things. You can talk enough in generalities that they feel like progress is being made. By the same token, if progress isn't being made, you got to tell them that too. You got to be honest and say, I got to tell you, we've been working it for six months and we have nothing. We're, we're, because it also, particularly where, where I prosecuted in DC, there were many, many, many people who would tell the family something before they'd ever tell the police. So you got to be tight with your family so that they're going to get any information and it's going to come to you. That's what happened in Egypt's case. We were part of the, our Facebook group is part of the reason that there was from tips that we were getting yep. in connection. You know, I can't talk about that much, but um, is why you know, we help. It, it helped. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things I tell people um, detectives is set up a Facebook page. And you know, what you do, you go look at everybody who's logging on to look at the Facebook page, because what happens if your guy is one of them? He's like, oh, shoot, what do they know? I'm going to go check out their Facebook That's exactly page. who we had on ours. We had them on there. We had them. They were fake, fake names, which we found out after, but they were, they were in with everything. I was, we were in connections and, and talking. They were so good. And I tell people um, all the time that Michigan State Police, the difference between our local department and Michigan State Police is that Michigan State Police made us feel like when I brought my kids to Disney World, these prince, princesses do this every single day, but they made yep. my daughter feel like she was the first girl, the, the only prince yeah. in the entire park. And Michigan State Police made us feel like Egypt Covington was their only case that they're ever working on. I know damn well that they were working on right. so before, but they made us feel like like Disney World. Like it's all focused around Egypt. And that's what that's all we wanted. And yep. they no, were that's a really good point. Talking to us, keeping in touch with us. My my issue now is that some of these and so then I brag about Michigan State Police. Well, now these cases, in particular, Jessica Bedford is and now Cassie Merrow, she's also in state police. Oh, so is D Warner. I helped both of those cases get to the state police. And they're having different experiences, which is frustrating because I, I talked so highly and it's like, why? Just because we were making this national that now you're going to treat us differently. I, I don't know. Or were we just lucky to get these detectives? And I mean, I, our right. prosecutors on our case, oh my gosh, I, I, I can't talk better, more highly. Um, yeah, that's nice. And, Although now every time I think of Michigan State Police, I'm going to think of them as Snow White and Cinderella. Yeah. So. <laughs> You should, because that's how we felt. I totally will, if I ever beat one. <laughs> well, that's my 
plan in all of this is to either have my company fly you out and, and have you out here because I'm going to offer, um, I was going to talk about this at the end in which we do need to kind of wrap up. I understand. I don't want to keep you all night, but, um, I, I do, I'm going to offer them that I will take care of all the expenses and let's do this. Let's get you out there. I think it should be a requirement. I know Sarah attorney said that too. It should be a requirement for every department. To yeah, I'd love to do it. I just did one, you know, COVID um, knocked us out for a couple years, obviously, where I couldn't do any in-person training, but I was just out um, last month with uh, uh, Arizona Homicide Investigators Association, which is the third time I've been out. So what do you cover in those? So I do a four-hour class that covers um, mostly geared towards um, police how to investigate and then also how to prosecute because i do believe the police need to be involved in the prosecution of the cases but goes nuts and bolts um somewhat along the lines of my book how to actually do these cases um and then i go through a case study which oddly is my case uh i talk about how my case went um even though my case in some ways is atypical because it was two people who were in a relationship for about three months but it was still a domestic case yeah. Um, had a lot of twists and turns. And then my case also, I think, features a very good interrogation. Um, and so I think there's a lot to be learned from the interrogation um, technique nice. that um, Detective Kaufman used in my case. And so I think there's a lot that can be learned from that. Um, and uh, so, that, so that's what I do. It's about a four hour, I call it a course that I teach. And it can be, I, I've heard you say that you've done it as small as one department at a time and as big as a state yes. group. So yep. if I put this together and get something together, I will be, I can't help but say I'll be so disappointed if a department says no. Um, yeah, no, I'd be happy to do it. And, and, and like my consulting, um, it's free other than my expenses to get out there. Um, because again, I can't, I can't charge anything, which is fine. I, I probably wouldn't even if I was able to take care of you. Um, um, but yeah, but yeah, so it's, uh, and it's not, and it's, you know, to me, it's really good to kind of spread the word on it. Um, it's really heartening to me to travel to different places in the country and see how different departments work. Um, and it's generally to me, it's very heartening to see how passionate people are um, about these cases because the people who come to these conferences are people who want to learn how to be better homicide detectives because they're generally large-scale homicide conferences that I go to. Um, and that's always gratifying to me that people who want to learn to be better in their craft and don't think, oh, I know everything. What do I, what do I need to, what do I need to know? I was really um, shocked when I was talking to um, a prosecutor named Cass Castillo who's a prosecutor out of Florida, and he's tried five nobody homicide cases, more than anybody in the country. And he said he had seen me at a conference in Florida years ago, and I was, we've since corresponded, but at the time I was like, dude, did you not say anything to me? Like, I'm teaching you? Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> he's done this so many times, but he said he really enjoyed the conference and he, you know, picked up some things from it. And that to me is very flattering of here's someone who's, I've done one, not 564. I had someone once say, you tried all these cases on your table? I was like, yeah, no, I've tried one. Um, and this guy's tried five and had a sixth case that I think ended up in a plea. Um, phenomenal pre prosecutor, legendary prosecutor in the Florida State's um, attorney's office. 
Um, and to have him say, oh yeah, I went to one of your classes and you know, I learned something from it. Um, yeah. That shows me that's the level of person that is coming to these things of someone who really doesn't need to have my training because he knows probably a hell of a lot more than I do, but is still willing to learn to pick up that one nugget, that yeah. one thing that might might make a difference. In, that's in the prosecutor that we want in all of these cases. And I hope Absolutely. That, that Ashley Morris-Mullis, Dee Warner, Cassie Mero, and Jessica Bedford are the, the your next to make it up to to 568. Like, I, yes. hope that I hope so. Or maybe not even go to trial. The cases are so good, they just plead out. That's yes, easy. yes, yes. And so um, something else that I wanted to touch base on too is, is treating these no-body homicide cases as uh, every single one of the cases that I'm working on have started as missing persons. And I'm working on, I've worked on some suicide cases and I always wonder, same thing with, with missing persons. Why do you not first treat them as homicide instead of, oh, it was suicide. Oh, oh, this, she's missing. And then how do you feel about treating them first as homicide cases and then rather than missing persons first? So I'm going to read you a stat that I use in um, my training, and I'm just going to my PowerPoint okay. to pull it up. But the stat is, and this is from England, one in 7,400 missing persons cases ends in homicide, but one of 34 homicides starts as a missing person case. So what that says is, look, most missing person cases, they're not going to be homicide. But a lot of homicides start off as a missing person case. And so the second stat I'm going to give you is in 2021, there were 521,000 missing people at some point during that year. Only 12% were adult females. So what that says to me is you have to look at the case when it happens and say to yourself, is this a missing persons case? Or is this really a homicide case? And if you have a case with a woman who has never gone missing, mm -hmm. has a lot of connections to the community, has kids, has a job, is now missing for two, three, four days, that ain't a missing person case. That's a homicide case. And if you treat a missing persons case as a homicide case, you're never going to go wrong. Because if she returns, it's like, yay, she's yes. back. Yes. Okay. But if you treat it like a missing persons case and it's a homicide case, you're probably going to have different detectives. You're probably going to take different steps to solve it that aren't as extensive if you're treating it like a homicide. So there are certain categories of cases that right away should ring a bell and say, yeah, folks, I don't think this is a missing person. This is a homicide. Um, and you've got to look at your victim. But if you have, you know, a 16-year-old girl who's run away before, She's missing now for a day or two. Is that a homicide? The odds are probably not. But if you have a 36-year-old woman who's never gone missing mm -hmm. and all of a sudden she's missing, that doesn't make sense. Even in my case where my victim um, had a problem with alcohol, had formerly had a problem with drugs, was not working, was someone who could have very easily have been um, ignored what was telling to the detective when the homicide detective took over, he said, she's gone missing before, but for a day or two, and she's phoned her kids right away. She said, I'll be home uh -huh. tomorrow night, whatever. And she had five kids. 
from 18 to seven at the time. So they knew right away, there's no way this is a missing person case because even when she was away before, she called her kids. She came from a large family herself, not only having five kids. So those are the factors that you have to look at and say, in the first 24 hours, in the first 48 hours, am I going to declare this a homicide or am I going to declare it a missing person? It doesn't mean you have to go on the news and say, oh my God, this is a homicide, but you have to treat it like that. Even if you're saying to people, missing person, missing person, um, you know, years ago is that stupid thing. We got to wait 24 hours before, you know, we can declare it a homicide. I mean, that was ridiculous. Do they? What's that? They still do that. Um, they shouldn't because that's the most asinine thing I've ever heard. You have to base it on the evidence. I'm sure there are departments that do that. Um, you know, we had some of those issues in my case where the person was um, missing and then the defendant answered the uh, victim's cell phone when the police called and they said, oh, yeah, she's back. Don't worry. And the police went, check, missing person's case closed while it was being investigated as a homicide ridiculous against every policy the <laughs> Metropolitan Police Department had, but you do have incidents like that that are just crazy. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Frustrating for sure. Yes. Okay. Basically, I was going to say, what can a family do that's over the top frustrated with the prosecutor? But you kind of already answered all that, like with just hang with them. <laughs> yep. Weaky wheel um, gets the oil. Yes. How long and, and this, I'm sure it's dependent, but typically, so I have a few families that have like, they've been missing for a year. We've been going after this for a year. Why is this taking so long? What would you say for a nobody homicide case from starting as a missing person to going to trial? What would so you say the average? What I would say, Lindsay, is years ago, it used to be much longer. We would talk seven years, 10 years. 15 years. One of the things I've discovered in researching these cases is that time frame has tremendously shrunk. It's now not uncommon to have a year from disappearance to trial. Now, lately it's been a little skewed because of COVID, as we all know, COVID's kicked stuff off. But uh, before COVID in 2018, 2019, we were getting cases within a year. And the question becomes, why is that? And it really, that is 100% tied to technology. That now I know yeah. if I were to get a uh, text from one of my daughters, if I texted them and I didn't hear back for days, I would know that's the problem. Um, because we text each other constantly, or, or even one of my siblings, I have four siblings. If I were to text my family text and not hear from that person, I would know there's a problem. So unlike in say, you know, 1986 or 1997, when you didn't have that information, you wouldn't know. I haven't heard from the person. Well, what, they didn't call you on the telephone? Like there are no cell phones, Right. all of that information. So now the timeframe should be rightly shrinking. And that means families should be more impatient with police and prosecutors to say, look, nobody's heard anything from a year. She texted me every day. She posted on Facebook. She's had none of that. On top of the sort of traditional things of nothing on her bank account, nothing on her credit card, nothing. She's got her Section 8 
housing and has never paid it, or she got her disability and it's never it's never been accessed through um, through her bank account. Those types of things, I think, are very clear symbols and should be enough for the police to move more quickly than they did even 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. Yeah, I know in particular, again, Jessica Bedford, she last was heard from anyone was May 13, 2020. She reached out to her mom or and her daughter talked to her on Mother's Day, which was May 10th, 2020. Yes. The last person that talked to her was, um, she got an argument with her ex-boyfriend, whatever. Um, they know, like I said, the detectives um, and prosecutor knows that I'm talking with you and reaching out to you. So um, hopefully you'll be able to get that entire case and, and help them. And, and hopefully she'll be one of your, your next ones, along with the other three. I mean, I'm sure you'll be hearing. Uh, Dee Warner has a phenomenal private investigator, uh, Billy Little. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's no. yeah, phenomenal. Um, and he's been really moving this case forward. Anyway. I'm hoping to get you four more. <laughs> I'm hoping to Great. increase your load. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So let's, okay. Oh, jury selection. So your jury selection in what, what would you in particular as a prosecutor be looking for in a nobody case? I, I've talked to different prosecutors about jury selection regarding murders and homicides. I'm curious in a nobody case, what, so to me, selecting a jury <clears throat> is not really any different than in a regular murder case because <clears throat> what I tended to look for in jurors are people with life experience and intelligence because particularly in a no-body murder case, you're putting on, it's a lengthy trial. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence. It's pretty rare in a no-body murder case to have someone come in and say, oh yeah, I saw him kill her and then he chopped her up and then I saw her toss him off a bridge or put him in a dumpster you have a lot of circumstantial evidence and you need someone of a certain level of uh, intelligence to be able to sort through that. But you also want someone with life experience because a lot of what you're trying to show is just common sense. The critical thing though, in a nobody murder case that I tell every prosecutor is you must eliminate anyone from a jury who can't answer yes to the following question. And that question might be asked for a judge in some jurisdictions like D.C. or by the attorney. But the question is, if the government proves beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant murdered the victim, but there's no body, can you still find the defendant guilty? Mm. The answer to that has to be yes, because yeah. you've already preloaded it with saying the government proved beyond a reasonable doubt that he killed her. But you'll have people who will say no, because there's no body fine, you're wrong, but that's you're fine, <laughs> but you're <laughs> out. And, and you're out because the judge is going to give you a for-cause challenge, which is not one of the limited ones that a prosecutor can use, but you have an endless amount of cause challenges because the judge has to say that person can't sit on the jury. It's the same in a death penalty case. If you have someone say, I'm morally opposed to the death penalty, they're not going to sit in a death penalty case. That is a critical question because you will find a lot of people who will say, I can never find someone guilty if there wasn't a body. And that's fine. That's their prerogative. But that's not legally sufficient. And that's really critical to make sure you don't have any of those jurors on your jury panel. Now, did your case, I'm just curious, did you have to go through then the appellate process? Did I did go through the appellate process. And <laughs> there was a very 
um, important appellate issue in my case that arguably could have gone against me. But in my case, the defendant died while the appeal was pending. So the appeal was dismissed um, and it, it never it never went forward. So I was in a way, I mean, I don't I don't miss him. Don't get me wrong. Um, you don't generally wish death on anybody, but he died at a very timely time because the appeal was never was never uh, completed. So uh, there was still. I, the I truly believe everything happens for a reason. There is no yes. coincidence. Not there's no such thing. Yeah, I do think there's a very realistic chance that for this kind of technical issue, our case could have been reversed and tried again. And at that point, I was no longer in the office. I had already uh, left and gone to another job. So uh, it would have been interesting. I would have begged to come back to try the case, which would have been uh, which would have been fun. But luckily, we never had to face that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and then my last question is what, and I guess you can say this as short as you can, <laughs> but I'm sure this is like a lengthy answer, but what do you specifically look for as a nobody homicide prosecutor? What are you looking for? If, if I can get these cases in your hands, what would you be looking for? So one of the things I'll read you again from um, my PowerPoint is one of the things you see in these cases that I've discovered is you see a lot of commonality in these things that are not necessarily in run-of-the-mill murder cases. The first one is the victim, if you ever find out where they are or have a suspicion, they're often buried in a place familiar to the suspect. The suspect does not get rid of a body in an unfamiliar location. And why is that? it's hard to get rid of a body. It's suspicious if you are caught with a body. And the last thing you wanna do is be digging up a hole on some private property that you don't know. And all of a sudden there's a farmer standing there with a shotgun saying, what the hell are you doing on my property, boy? Uh, you wanna get rid of that body in a place you're comfortable with. So maybe it's, a, it's your relative's property. Maybe it's um, a place you're familiar with because you hunt and you fish. So often I find in the cases where ultimately we learn where the body was, typically after the trial, or we have a strong suspicion what happened because of the confession, it's going to be in a location familiar, familiar to the suspect. The second big thing you see in a no-body case is evidence of cleaning up. You often see the defendant buying bleach cleaning solutions. You see rugs missing. You see carpet torn up. You go into the house and you see a big space where furniture used to be because the sun faded the, the carpet around the piece of furniture, but there's a perfect you know, outline of a couch. Why'd you get rid of the couch? Because it had blood all over it. Yeah. Or the ceilings are painted or the walls are painted. Very, very common. You often see evidence of the defendant buying this cleaning equipment, getting rid of furniture. Well, other thing you often see in these cases is suspects in nobody murder cases often move on too quickly. They move into a new house. They move out of an old location to a new apartment. They move on to a new girlfriend. In my case, the defendant had a new girlfriend within two days of the murder. That's how quickly he moved on. And of course, if the person is just missing, why is the defendant getting rid of her property and her clothing? She's just, she's been gone two days and you're donating her stuff to the Salvation Army? Are you what kidding she, me? What if she goes Those, back? <laughs> right. Yeah. Those are the types of things that you see. And the last one is that I spend a lot of time when I'm looking at a case, 
I try to keep very careful track of what the defendants say out of his own mouth. Because one of the things I've learned over the years is lies told by the killer are more damning to the jury than we in law enforcement believe they are. Those of us in law enforcement are completely uh, unfazed by people lying to us because it happens all the time. That's just what we did. Witnesses, defendants, suspects, people had nothing to do with the case. They just lie, lie, lie. But when you're showing a jury, here's what this defendant said to this person, here's what they said to this person, here's what they said to the police, and it's three different versions, a jury's gonna say, well, why would someone lie about something related to their loved one, related to their wife, their girlfriend, or even their ex-girlfriend, unless they're trying to cover something up that they did? Because if my wife or my girlfriend went missing, I do everything in my power to find out what happened to them if I had nothing to do with it. But the first time I started telling lies, that's gonna set off alarm bells with detectives and it's certainly gonna set off alarm bells at trial when we say, here's the six things Tad lied about. Six different things, why would he lie? Now you can have instances where people lie for other reasons. Oh, I don't wanna get in trouble because I had an affair with someone. Um, and so maybe you're looking for my girlfriend and I was married and I had an affair and this and that. So you have to be careful, but what I've emphasized to police and prosecutors who are used to lies coming to them all the time, a jury doesn't look at it the same jaded way that we do. They're gonna look at those three or four lies or 17 lies mm -hmm. and be like, wait a second, why is this guy lying about it? Well, he's lying because he did it. And those are more powerful pieces of evidence than most of us think they are. Yeah, oh my gosh. Makes a lot of sense. And <laughs> just, I um, completely, I'm just so honored to have you. I feel like I could talk to you all, <laughs> all night. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I really, so I really appreciate you giving me an opportunity to talk about some of these things and hope that they'll prove helpful in other cases into, into other people's. Um, yes. And I really commend you for your work, for taking this on. It's not something a lot of people do who aren't in, in this professionally. So it's, to me, very admirable that you're advocating um, for these people and advocating for victims and victim families is a very important thing to me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, but before we get off, where can people find you? So uh, they could find me in Washington, D.C. I'm not going to give you a <laughs> to that. I don't mean find you. That would psychotic. be <laughs> No, uh, they can find me um, on my website, which is nobodycases.com or nobodymurdercases.com. Um, a lot of what I do is I put stuff on Twitter where I'm the nobody guy. Um, on Twitter, I um, try and interact with, with people there, and that's probably the main place that I post stuff. But you can also reach me um, at my email, which is tad.debias at gmail.com, and my cell phone where a lot of um, people contact me either um, by calling or by texting is 202-421-0639, and all of those are on my website and I'd love to hear from people. But again, I just emphasize, I don't work directly with families. I work with families who go and ask the police, hey, contact this guy. He's not a wing nut. Um, he can give you some references. Um, and then I work directly with the police and prosecutors on the case. And then I usually don't talk to the family after that. They need to understand that too. I leave it to the police and prosecutors the case um, I just finished up I was brought into by the family and they actually reached out and I said all I can tell you is I'm close to finalizing 
um, the, what I write up or report for the, um, for the police, but you're going to have to talk to them. I can't send you the report. And that's part of the agreement. So I just do want people to understand that's how I work. Yeah. And also I feel, I, I want to say to all the listeners too, that you guys, <laughs> I, when I did my nobody podcast, I can't remember what episode it is. I happened to, of course, I came upon your website without knowing who you were, but I was just trying to get research. I was trying to get as much information as I could. And I didn't realize until I listened, re-listened to my nobody, is a nobody necessary um, podcast. And I was like, my gosh, I got a ton of information from his website. But how I really found you was from Sarah Turney and you guys, Voices for Justice, listen to her podcast. Phenomenal. He, I mean, she is brilliant at what she does. So um, that is actually how I heard Tad being interviewed by Sarah Turney. And I went to his website from that interview. His phone number is right on there. I called, I called you. I left a yep. voicemail. And you guys, he texted me right back. So it works. Like you just have to, I think that so many people, and I find that with me too, they're like, oh, I, I can't believe that you messaged me back. I can't believe it. I can't, you know, I'm like, I'm human. I'm just like you. I'm no better than you. I love what I do. I am so honored that you reached out to me. And that is exactly how I felt with you. Like I had that feeling of like, I remember telling Dwayne, my husband, Dwayne, Ted, Ted messaged me. <laughs> like, like he, he messaged me back, you know, and then I took forever to message you. But um, it's, it's like, yes, people who are real and really care. That's what we do. We, right. We do it. And your phone number is on there for a reason. Your email is on there for a reason. So um, you guys, let's keep Chad busy and let's yep. <laughs> let's don't show up to my house though. There are limits. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But um, I am so grateful that you took the Great. time. I know that you are extremely busy. So to take the time out to talk to me is phenomenal. I hope that we can kind of keep some communication. I probably, I, I promise Absolutely. you that I will not um, overwhelm you. <laughs> no, I'm happy to. And, and as I told you before, I still keep up with Sarah and I'm very, just yeah. enormously impressed by her and, and what she's done. So yeah. I'm, I'm proud to call her a friend too. Love it. Love it. So there you go, you guys, the brilliant Tad Tobias. Now the pressure is on for the, the, the detectives that are working these no body homicide cases. What will it hurt? to get another resource, to take a look, and to help get a conviction. What will it hurt to just reach out to Tad Tobias? That is the challenge I am giving you right now. The detectives on Jessica Bedford's case, Cassie Marrow's case, Ashley Morris Mullis's case, Dee Warner's case, Karina McClurklin's case, and every other missing person's case to all of the detectives. Be heroes and reach out to Tad DeBias. At least give him a chance. At least reach out to his previous clients. Ask them what he has done for their case. I know that many of the detectives on the cases that I've discussed are frustrated with the prosecutors. So now's your time to use a resource that is available to you at no 
charge. The worst thing that could happen is that nothing new comes out. The best thing that could happen is that you learn a shit ton of new information and you can be a hero and move these cases to trial on behalf of all of the families of our missing and murdered loved ones. Please, please reach out to Tad DeBias. Please give him the entire case file of our missing loved ones. Please allow the help. Please allow someone who has successfully tried and won a no-body homicide case to help you. Thank you for your consideration. Be the best detective and the best prosecutor that you can be. Again, you guys, please share this episode with everyone and anyone you may know that has a missing loved one. I appreciate you. You know, I don't know why so much pain and loss has to happen. I don't have all the answers. Only he does. And sometimes the best thing to do is is just trust it. It was back in 04 when Grandpa died and my shirt was soaking wet with tears from my eyes. You tried to calm me down, tried to plead your case, but I just bit that face right back in your face. And you said, well, you may not understand now. Somehow, someday, someway, you'll find out why it had to be. Yeah, according to his plan, he won't put you through anything that he thinks you can't make it through. With his everlasting love, you may need to scream at the top of your lungs. Because while you think he died at too young an age, it really was his time. There's no reason for rage. He's in a better place now, away from the pain and the stress and the hate and the hurt and the strain. The best way to honor him and his legacy is to live how he did and not question me. No, God, no, please no Tell me it ain't 